0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. So So this morning we are wrapping up our series on the divine conspiracy, and in this series we spent the last nine weeks working through just three chapters uh, from the New Testament book of Matthew. And over the centuries, Christians have taken to calling these three chapters the Sermon on the Mount because that's literally what it is. Jesus has this crowd of people that's been following him, so he hikes up the side of a mountain, and he sits down. The Bible tells us he sat while he did this, and he just starts preaching. And as Christians, we believe that all scripture, the entire Bible, is written by God. So God orchestrated the events, and he guided the individual writers, and he inspired their words. So that means that there's not any verse, or chapter, or book of the Bible that is any less God's word than any other part. But still, there's, there's something special about these three chapters. And over the centuries, the Sermon on the Mount has really risen uh, in, to the top in the esteem of the church. I mean, the, the Sermon on the Mount contains some of the most famous, well-recognized teachings from the entire Bible. I mean, it's got a, our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, judge not lest you be judged, do unto others as you would have them do unto, do, do unto you. It's, it's all in there in those three chapters. So from the earliest days of the church, we see church leaders preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, just like we've been doing this summer. I think that's because there's just something about this image Right of of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, just sitting down and talking directly to a crowd of normal people just like us. So it's a record of words that God actually said in real time at a real point in history. So over the generations of Christ followers, we just seem to be drawn to these three chapters and to give them extra attention. And what I'm leaving this series with is a sense that I'm really supposed to live this stuff out. You know, this isn't just a collection of inspirational quotes and moral aphorisms, right? These are commands, and Jesus wants me to take them seriously, and he's inviting me to obey them. Not in my own strength and willpower, because I can't, but in a life lived alongside of him. So... As I respond to God and as I allow his word to, to shift and, and adapt my, my desires and, and my motivations, he graciously gives me the power to follow him and obey things that I otherwise couldn't. So, power to fight the, the lust and the anger in my heart like Ethan talked about a few weeks ago, or the power to resist the draw to pride and performance like Elliot talked about, or like we're gonna talk about this week, how to think lovingly about the people around us. And that's what I hope the whole church is leaving this series with, that this hasn't just been a checklist of good things to do and bad things not to do. Jesus has been giving us a glimpse really into the mind of God by showing us what God thinks is most important and valuable and how we can know him and how we can live a life that pleases him. So our passage for the week is Matthew 7, verses 1 through 11. And this is a big passage, but there are really two key ideas that emerge from it, how we can think rightly about people and how we can think rightly about God. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So in this passage, Jesus is giving us insights into how to think rightly about people. and I think that might be one of the least controversial passages in the entire Bible. I mean, the reason that's not controversial is because the ideas in it are still such an integral part of the morality of our culture, right? I think most atheists would agree with this verse, right? Judging someone, making a a moral assessment about someone else, well, that's one of the cardinal sins of our culture. So don't judge and don't be a hypocrite. Don't hold people to values that you yourself don't live up to. And I think everyone agrees with that, even though they probably don't know that it came from Jesus. But the reason the world says don't judge and the reason Jesus says don't judge could not be more different. The world says don't judge because there's no standard to judge from, right? It's considered the height of arrogance to, uh, to assume I have any moral vantage point to evaluate anyone else. So, if we all stick to our own private moral universes and focus on the logs in our own eyes, then everything will be fine. It's sort of a moral libertarianism. But that is not why Jesus tells us not to judge. Jesus says don't judge, not because there isn't a standard, but because he is the standard. And this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. And God said, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. So God created humankind in his image, in the likeness of God he created him. So when Jesus says, don't judge, this is why. Because we're all made in his image and in his likeness. This is why we all have inherent worth and value. You and I are image bearers. In some profound, mysterious way that we can only scratch the surface of, he made us to be like him and in our own unique ways to reflect truth about Him back out to the world. And by the way, this is actually why church is really important. you know why it's non-negotiable. Because as we do life together, if, if I reflect some truth about God and you reflect some truth about God, that as we do life, we get this mosaic effect. And we all see God's in way, see God in ways we can't, if we're just doing life on our own. So when I judge you, I'm stepping into dangerous territory because I'm prosecuting a fellow image bearer. It's almost like I'm cross-examining God about why he made you the way he did and why he's not changing you faster. And that's a dangerous place to be. But we need to pause here to clarify something. The judgment that Jesus is talking about here is often misunderstood to be any moral assessment of another person right? The morality of our culture says, if you're observing my actions and my words and you're coming to some conclusion about my character, my morality, my sincerity, uh, that's being judgmental, okay? You can't do that, right? Even Jesus says so. But that's not the judgment that Jesus is talking about. Because we have to balance this out with other passages in the Bible that give us situations where we're supposed to judge, So sometimes we need to assess other people's character and morality based on who they reveal themselves to be through their words and actions. In fact, later in this same chapter, Matthew 7, Jesus tells us this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Well, But how do you do that if you're not supposed to judge people? And then Paul in the book of Titus chapter three tells us this, and he's talking about inside of the church. He says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. Well, that sounds really judgmental. What do we do with that? Well, as a lawyer, like Bevan said, dealing with judges and judgment is a big part of my life. And I have one client that I've represented for nearly 15 years, really good guy. He owns a business, employs around 150 people. And a few years ago, he got hit with this massive lawsuit from a former employee. Okay? And what makes the case so difficult is that the stakes are so high. Right? Like, if the plaintiff wins, you know, the person bringing the case, if, if that person wins, that could literally bankrupt the company. The case is so big. And then 150 people are out of work. So, you know, no pressure. So what do I do as this guy's lawyer? Do I go to the court and say, Your Honor, this case just doesn't feel right. You know, my client knows in his heart he didn't do anything wrong. Or do I go to the judge and say, Your Honor, it'd be really narrow-minded of you to rule against my client. So why don't you worry about the log in your own eye, Your Honor, and my client will worry about the log in his, and it'll all be fine. But I can't do that. Right? I have to bring facts. I have to cite the law. Right? And the only way for my client to get justice is for the judge to make a judgment against the plaintiff. And our culture is kind of confused on this because we keep trying to shuffle off any moral standard so that no one ever has to feel judged, yet we instinctively recognize when justice fails and it infuriates us. But you can't have one without the other. You just can't. So there is a sense in which we need judgment. It's actually wise to judge people and hold them to moral standards. That's why we need judges and pastors and parents for our own safety, for society to keep functioning, uh, for the health of our church. But let's be honest. Most of the time when we're judging someone, it's not this wise kind of judgment. It's the other kind right? It's the kind Jesus is talking about here when he says, judge not. So if we want to obey God and not engage in this kind of judgment, we need to understand that Jesus is looking inward, right? He's taking the fight inside of our thought life. And this is actually what Jesus does throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. He does this in chapter 5 when he talked about lust and anger. He says. You think the standard is don't murder people and don't commit adultery, but that's not God's standard. God is concerned with the anger and lust in your heart, in your thoughts, and he does it in chapter 6 when he talks about pride and performance. He says, don't go around showing off your prayers and your fasting and your charity. Those things are between you and God, so look inward to resist that pride. And now in chapter seven, he's doing the same thing with our relationships, how we think about our fellow image bearers. So he's not talking primarily about acting judgmental or saying judgmental things. He's talking about judgmental thinking. Because if I say something judgmental, it's because it's leaking out of this overflowing judgment in my heart. So that's where Jesus wants me to look. How am I thinking about other people in ways that are unloving, unloving, uncharitable or resentful and the root of this kind of judgment the kind that Jesus warns us about is self-justification it's self-justification I can completely reframe how I think about myself just by how I think about you I so desperately want to feel better about myself I, I need to validate my choices and my priorities and my lifestyle everything from how I spend my money, to how I raise my kids. I want to justify them to myself. And I can do that so easily just by thinking less of you. I don't need to change a thing. I just need to cut you down, and then I can feel better about myself by comparison. But let's be clear on why that's wrong. right? Go back to Genesis chapter 1. We're all made in the image of God and made in his likeness. So when I do that, I'm attacking image bearers. It's like I'm taking a mental weed whacker to my fellow image bearers, just so I can chase that fleeting, phony high of feeling superior to you for just a split second. And that's sin, because it's an offense against the image of God inside of you, and it's an offense against the image of God inside of me, because I'm supposed to reflect God's goodness. That's why he made me, and I can't do that If I've settled into this acrid and hostile pattern of thinking, it's actually anti-God thinking. And Jesus wants us to understand that there are consequences for judgment. That's why he says in verse two, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, what does that mean? Well, judgmental people tend to find themselves being judged by others. It's hard to be judgmental in secret for too long because it has a way of leaking out, right? And judgmental people tend to find themselves isolated. No one is instinctively drawn to them because they don't, they don't give any life. But I think what Jesus is getting at more is on a spiritual level. If I'm attacking God's image bearers, then it's God who's doing the judging. It's God measuring back to me what I've measured out onto his creations. And best as I can tell from Scripture and my experience of dealing with judgmental people, mostly myself, is what that looks like is God limits the joy that I can find in life. I think that's the main consequence. When my judgmental heart is running unchecked, I can't seem to find joy anywhere. I I sure can't find it in people, and I don't find it in God because I can't have it both ways. I can't be a joyful person and a judgmental person. And I can't have a fruitful, life-giving relationship with God if I spend my days cutting down his image bearers. I just can't have it both ways. On Monday night, I drove up to LA to see my favorite band in concert at the Greek theater. And if you've never been to a show at the Greek, it's great, you should put it on your bucket list. And the whole night was wonderful, okay? The weather was perfect. I had great seats. The band was amazing. Even the traffic was good, okay? I made it from Huntington to Los Feliz in like an hour and five minutes, and I left at 4.45, okay? Oh, this, is, this is amazing. But there was one person not having a good time, the guy sitting right behind me. He complained the entire show. Uh, he hated everything. He complained every time someone would get up to go to the bathroom or get a drink He complained about the set list. He even kept complaining because he thought people in the band were messing up their own songs. And I was like, I I don't, does he even like this band? I'm not even sure he's at the right concert. And and then a helicopter flew overhead, and that, he he did not like that at all. Uh, And I honestly felt sad for the guy, because 6,000 people are having the time of their lives, and he's miserable. And I think that's just a little picture of what Jesus is talking about. He wasted the concert. The only person who was punished with his judgments was himself, which is sad. Okay, so now that I've called out the speck in his eye, what about the log in mine? Okay, let's let's come full circle. I was having a great time because my circumstances were perfect, right? I had no responsibilities. I didn't have to relate with anyone. I was just on a mini vacation. Okay, so judgment-free. But what about on any normal day, okay, when I have to work and relate with people, okay? What does my inner monologue sound like on those days? I'm a lot worse than this guy's. So a concert is one thing, but how many entire days have I wasted in judgment, just chasing that phony joy? And being judgmental comes about as natural to me as breathing, because somehow... I am really arrogant and really insecure at the same time, okay? I don't know how that works, but it's but it's true, okay? And both of those, they drive me to pick people apart, okay? I'm the best, and also I'm the worst, so I've got to pick everyone apart around me. So I can't just write, stop judging on my checklist, okay? It goes too deep. I need God's help. Now, some of you might say, well, Adam, that sounds very nice and sermonly but uh, for very good, but that's not very practical. Okay, what do I, what do, I do with that? Okay, well, that's a great question. It, it's good to be practical. So I suggest praying something like this. This is literally the kind of thing that might go through my head <clears throat> to say, God, you made this person. They have just as much value as I do. There's no sin in their life that I don't have my own flavor of. I've got my own logs to deal with, so help me think lovingly about them. Help me think charitably about them because you made them. That's literally the sort of thing I might say to God. And he's been very faithful to answer those prayers by giving me the clarity about what's in my heart and the strength to fight against it and obey him. So Jesus has been teaching us how to think rightly about people. And then in verse 7, he switches gears. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So what Jesus is doing here is helping us think rightly about God. The challenge with a verse like this is that it's so contrary to our lived experience. Okay, There are lots of things that I've asked for and haven't received and lots of things that I've sought and haven't found. And I I know many of y'all. I know there are doors you've been knocking on for years that haven't opened. And this isn't the only verse like this. Verses that suggest a level of responsiveness to our prayers that we just don't see play out in real life. In fact, later in this same book, Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that if they have faith the size of a mustard seed, they can pray for mountains to move and nothing will be impossible. Uh, That's not... been. My experience mostly. And I've really wrestled with verses like this. Um, a couple of years ago, I was uh, studying through the, the book of John in the Bible, in my, my morning Bible study. And the way I do my Bible study, I go through a book at a time, one chapter at a time. So I'll study a chapter for about a week until I feel like I mostly understand it, and then move on to the, the next chapter. Uh, it's not complicated. But then I got to John chapter 14, verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I must have spent two or three weeks on that one verse, just trying to understand it. And I would pray, and I would tell God, Lord, I believe you. I I think you're being 100% honest here. You're, You're not playing word games. And yet, I'm not seeing how this could be true. And here we have a similar verse, asking you shall receive. But I do ask, and I often don't receive. So after a lot of wrestling with God over what passages like this might mean you know, for us and, and what he wanted Christians over the centuries to understand from it, I still don't really have any clean, easy answer. But I do have two suggestions for how to think about verses like this. And you could think of them like corrective lenses. So, like many of you, I have glasses, and the prescriptions in them are completely different because my eyes are messed up in different ways. So, this eye is mostly fine, so the prescription isn't very strong. This eye is terrible. Like, I can't see even my notes. I can't, it's just totally blurry. So, the prescription barely fits in the frame. So, they're completely different, but um, with the two together, I can actually see pretty well. So I think it's helpful to look at these verses almost like through two corrective thought lenses. And lens one is an inward focus. Again, like with so many other things in these three chapters, Jesus is looking inward, not outward. He's not talking primarily about outward asking and outward receiving. He's inviting us to what you could call soul asking, soul seeking, soul knocking. And a few months ago, Elliot was preaching about prayer, and he talked about whether it was selfish to spend time praying for himself, okay? With so many things in the world and the church and in his family to pray for, wasn't it selfish to spend time praying for himself? And he concluded that it wasn't selfish. Why? And this is what he said, because I am the source of most of my problems, okay? I I love that. You can put that on my tombstone. I'm the source of most of my problems. So it's not selfish to pray for myself. It's common sense because there are so many things in my family and in my job and my relationships that flow from the state of my own soul. So I need to spend time tending that soil. I need to pray for my sin and my discouragement and pray for my joy because I have to go out into a lost world and I want to reflect Christ well. Uh, Before I got married, The pastor I was a part of at the time, you know, when we were getting ready to get married, said, the most loving thing you can do for your wife every day is get up early to pray and read the Bible. Well, why? Because my marriage and everything else flows from my walk with God. So that's where I need to ask and seek and knock. And like you, God has said no to a lot of my prayers, right? But you know what? Prayers don't get turned down. What doors open when I knock? Prayers to know God better. So prayers about getting to the root of of sin and how to fight against them. Prayers about how to follow him and obey him in in difficult situations. Or prayers for God to give me clarity when I just feel stuck in, in anger or sadness. And he always comes through in those prayers. Sometimes one, sometimes 20. Sometimes if I talk about it with my wife or the guys in my growth group. But he's never left my soul hanging. The second lens is the higher value. There's really a fundamental disconnect between what we think is valuable and what God thinks is most valuable. And we struggle with verses like this because we're not getting what we think is most valuable. So we we pray for healing and for financial provision and for a, a crisis to resolve. And when we don't see answers to those prayers over time, we look at verses like this and we wonder how God could be telling the truth. And to be clear, it is good and right to pray for those things, for healing, for provision, for your relationships. It honors God to pray for those things. But our disconnect is that they are not always what God thinks is the most valuable. What God sees as the most valuable is our knowledge of Him, how we're following Him, our friendship with Him. So the best gift He can give us is to know him more deeply and understand him more clearly. That's his priority for us. The highest value of anything he could give us, but it, it for sure doesn't always feel that way to us. Uh, several years ago, I was 35 at the time, and I suddenly developed severe chronic joint pain. So in just a few months, I went from you know, normal and healthy 35-year-old to just struggling to walk, and I could barely take out the trash. I remember our, our son, Barrett, was one year, one year at the time, and uh, just picking him up out of his crib was just excruciating. Like, it was embarrassing. when My wife would ask me to do things, and I would say, I, I just can't. It was terrible. So I went round and round with doctors and specialists and physical therapists trying to figure out what it was, and no one could figure it out, much less what to do to help me. So I begged God to heal me every day, but it only seemed to get worse and more confusing and more hopeless. And I've only been angry, like really angry with God, maybe two or three times in my life. And this was one of them. Because like the verse talks about, it felt like I was asking God for bread and fish, and he kept giving me stones and snakes, is what it felt like. But even in the pain and the discouragement and the embarrassment, I just had this gnawing sense that God wanted to use it. Ever had that feeling in the midst of something horrible? Just like it's right there. And the, what he sp- specifically wanted to do was help me grow in empathy and humility so I could be more sensitive to, to other people when they're suffering and, and understand their suffering. And God wanted me to know that it was possible to be a joyful person and have chronic joint pain. Okay? You can do both. You don't have to abandon yourself to a life of being grumpy. You, you can do both. And at that point, I had a values crisis. God wasn't giving me what I thought was most valuable. He was giving me what he thought was most valuable. So every day I had a choice. Am I going to slide into bitterness and apathy because the door of healing isn't opening? Or am I going to walk through the door God is opening, the door of knowing him more deeply and of being made more useful for his purposes? In short, what is it I really want most? Do I want the blessings, or do I want the one the blessings are from? Do I want the gift, or do I want the gift giver? And by God's grace, after about four years, in case you're wondering how I was able to walk up here, um, a doctor did finally figure out that I had an autoimmune issue, and and thank God I'm in remission, but those four-ish years, they were transformational. I, I think I can honestly say that I'm grateful for that experience, because I wouldn't Want to go back to who I was before those four years. And this is the destination that God is leading every Christ follower to to have your highest value aligned with His, to have your happiness anchored in Him so that you can enjoy Him over and above anything else He might ever do for you or give you. But that's not a switch you can just flip, right? That takes time, it takes discipline, it takes doing life with a bunch of other Christ followers who are on that same journey. But that's the goal, right? Happiness in God alone, even if every other door stays closed. So we've now spent 10 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. In these three chapters, Jesus has really been telling us and showing us who God is. He's a God who reveals himself to the pure in heart, who comforts those who mourn, who rewards what is done in secret, and he tells us that if we, if we seek him first, everything else we need will be added to us. And all of this points to a God who is personal and faithful and through Christ helps us meet every standard he holds us to, which is what makes him the only God worth following and the only thing worth building a life on. So let's pray. God, thank you for... For these three chapters that uh, 2,000 years ago, you just sat down and you talked to people just like us, people confused and lost and wanting to know more about you, and thank you that, that you have done that, that we, we see so clearly what you expect of us and what it means to live a life that pleases you, but also you don't leave us alone to meet that standard, you help us and you, you hold your hand out to call us forward and live this life alongside of you. We thank you so much, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.